welcome to the Vertiguys podcast. I'm Eric. And I'm Sean. And we are the Vertiguys. We are checking out the dark side of DC. No kidding. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, and Preacher. And today we are covering two issues of John Constantine Hellblazer that were both written by Grant Morrison. Right. Is this the first time we've covered Grant Morrison on the podcast? I was going to say, basically, it's the first time we've covered Grant Morrison, although we did talk briefly once about the filth. Okay. If we continue to explore other different Vertigo comics, then Lord knows we could run into a lot of Grant Morrison in the future. So this is kind of a kind of an important landmark. Yeah. The first issue that we're covering today is Hellblazer issue 25, Early Warning. Now... This issue credits the story to Grant Morrison. Generally, that implies that Grant Morrison did not write the script, but there is no credit for the script. I see. Art and colors are by David Lloyd. Now, we he- saw David Lloyd before on Hellblazer when we did the Horrorist miniseries. Yes, the Horrorist story, Antarctica. Many listeners will also be familiar with him from his work on V for Vendetta. Right. And David Lloyd is also the cover artist for these two issues. On the cover of the first issue, we have a parade of people wearing creepy oversized masks. The closest is holding a knife and wearing an apron that says, I'm just a big baby. Yeah, and another one is wearing a badge that says, I heart Jason, which I took as a reference to the Jason of the Friday the 13th movies. Makes sense. They're also all carrying lanterns. Right. So we open on a visual and a description of the early warning system at Flyingdale's. Yeah, the Flyingdale's defense early warning system. This is an RAF radar base, and we see three giant radome spheres in a row. In this issue, they appear to be sort of greenish-black, possibly cast in the dusk light. In real life, they would have been white. These were replaced with the current pyramid-shaped solid-state array in the late 80s, early 90s. Okay. So this is fairly late in the lifetime, but this would have been something of an iconic visual for Flyingdales in the 80s. (laughs) But it's basically a radar system that detects nuclear weapons, as Constantine says, four minutes in advance. Right, and John is riding along in a truck, and the truck driver is going on about, what can you do in four minutes? Dunno, boil an egg, Constantine suggests. I guess if you happen to be in a place where you have a ladder to get deep underground, you have time to get deep underground. Yeah, I guess that's right, if you actually have a fallout shelter. Right. Now, John is hitchhiking north. I thought that he might be on the trail of the family man, but at the end of this story arc, he just heads back to London. So I guess there's no connection to the ongoing story. Yeah, except for him heading to London, I'm going to go ahead and spoil that there is no real connection to the family man story arc that we are purportedly in, in this issue. Right. The truck driver asks John his line of business, and John says, wheeling and dealing, which is in fact the line of business of Jerry, who's... To host Pat P.O. Flynn. Whose money he had been using and whose house he had been staying at. Right, and John accidentally completed a deal with the family man for the location, the address of some potential victims. That's pretty much the only reference we're going to get to the story arc, I think. Truck driver replies, That's just Britain, eh? We all get by as best we can. Yes, indeed. The truck driver lets John out so that he can walk to a place called Thursdike. 
John seems to be heading there for reasons we don't know yet. But he is headed there specifically. Yeah, and this tiny village is apparently holding some kind of big parade. Thursdyke is apparently in central England as there is a sign that simply points one way and says the north, points the other way and says the south, and points west and says Thursdyke. On the next page, we see a lens, and then we see through the lens, and then we meet Una. Yeah, although we don't get her name for quite a while. She is apparently an old girlfriend of Constantine's, and she summons John here for the parade, some kind of old pagan ritual that she thought he'd be interested in. Una is depicted here wearing tight white clothes, and the internal lines, the seams of her clothes, aren't actually drawn on her, so she's just like a nude figure of pure white. And John, by contrast, is wearing all black. Yeah, well, that's me in it. Enigmatic. Una also mentions that they're only 20 miles from Ravenscar Psychiatric Hospital, where John had spent some time, and she did too. They met there, and we learn that Una is psychic. She hears voices, which we are given to understand are actually other people's thoughts in her head if she stops taking her pills. Yeah, I don't know if I would say this page makes it clear that she's psychic versus just schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. Neither of them says anything on this page to specifically support the idea that the voices she hears are real. Fair enough. And she mentions John's time in Ravenscar. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, so after the Newcastle incident, which was a formative incident in John Constantine's life, which we saw depicted in the pages of Hellblazer number 11. We have covered at length. Uh, yeah, John was basically responsible for an innocent little girl being condemned to hell and spent some time in a mental institution afterwards. I mean, Hell didn't get Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Constantine's friend Oliver. He managed to save him from... Okay, this is... <laughs> Just the worst possible joke. I could make it worse. No, you could probably go worse. You know that I could. Yeah. I, I have faith. <laughs> so, Una and John make their way to a newsagent's. Specifically, John wants a cigarette. 20 silk cut, his usual order. And as he is ordering the cigarettes, three people in creepy masks come up behind him. Bloody they're, hell! They're just creeping all over John here. Yeah. And after John sees the masks, Una explains it's that kind of festival. Yeah, I like that she adds here, bang goes your street cred, John. We see here a guy named John Goss. Who is John Goss? Are you making a reference to Atlas Shrugged right now? I was. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I don't actually know who John Goss is. Well, he's apparently a shepherd. But if he comes back later in the story arc, I don't really know when or where. Yeah, that's true. He's just a perspective for a few seconds. For one page of building tension here. Yeah, he just basically narrates a bunch of foreboding shit. And the foreboding shit, as it often will throughout this story arc, takes the form of a kind of vibrating note that rings through the earth here in Thursday. Thursday Thursdale? Thursdyke? Thursdyke. Okay. This is not the first hint of foreboding shit that we get either. Earlier, when John and the truck driver parted ways, they both agreed that there was a storm on its way. Right. So John Goss feels this vibration, this sub-audible sound, and apparently so do a bunch of crows in a tree which take off in this vast swarm of black feathers. 
They say that if all the crows in the wood forsake it suddenly, it is surely a warning of disaster. Old wives' tales. Superstition. We cut back to John and Una. They are at a pub, shooting a bit of pool, and three pool balls form the same image sitting side by side as the early warning system on the first page of the issue. Right. Una's filling John in on a little local history. She tells him the village is dying. The government closed the pits. Some kind of open coal mines, I'm guessing? Yeah, the pits is going to mean coal mines, I'm almost sure. So there's no jobs. The parade slash carnival slash festival that they're having is, she says, an attempt to salvage some community spirit, to shout, we're not dead to the world. Now, it turns out that the only salvation that Thursdike has had is that there's an airbase nearby to employ people. And so the protester who enters the pub and starts raving against the Yanks is not particularly greeted warmly. It's jobs for the people in this town. That's all we care about. The local goes on to point out that the protesters are middle-class yuppies from London. They're not even from here. They don't have real problems. Listening in, two old women begin to discuss how they've got a point and worry about the radiation from the base. Another local tries to defuse the situation by sneaking up and putting a middle-aged woman mask on his friend's head. We're supposed to be having a good time tonight, not bloody murdering one another. He does not take it well. One more word from you and I'll break your bloody legs. This is the giant housewife. Yes. Next, someone asks the sheriff to stop the fight and he says that he's off duty and anyway he has a baby to think about now doesn't make him much of a sheriff. Well, you gotta do what you gotta do. They don't care, laments the protester. They don't, wearing masks in the face of the apocalypse. Meanwhile, the two old women discuss the effects of radiation. And the lambs were born with all the skin flaking off them. Well, they never tell you what they're up to. Scientists. The army. God only knows what's going on right under our noses. And with that, we cut underground. Where a Professor Horobin... I wonder if that's derived from horror bin? It could be, I suppose. It's quite possible that the resemblance to the word horror is intentional, at the very least. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he is talking about how the Earth is full of buried kings and giants, and how everyone has a buried king inside themselves, and that his work is almost a cult. Right, he talks about the myth of the buried king and he views it as a metaphor for buried potential in each person. His work, he says, is about waking that potential. Science, they say, is the new religion, and yet we build our cathedrals under the ground. In the past, those Christian architects built toward heaven. Do we not build towards hell? Yeah, the potential that he's trying to unlock in people is hardly what I would call positive. Right. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Cut back to Una and John. They're walking up to see the church. John agrees with the protesters. This country's turning into an aircraft carrier for the bloody Yanks. You should talk to the parson here, John. His name's Bayless. He's an ex-RAF pilot who's been an anti-nuclear activist since the early 60s. And as they're talking, a van passes by them. John momentarily sees it as a creepy undertaker on a horse-drawn buggy. No, nothing's wrong. I thought I saw something. I don't know. There's something funny about this place. You're psychic. Can't you feel anything? Like I said, only when I stop taking the tablets. Once inside the church, they admire a famous pre-Christian carving of a scary open mouth. It's basically the demon face from the Tomb of Horrors. This is called the Maw, and represents the doorway to hell. 
So Father Bayless walks up and starts talking John's ear off. Yeah, after Bayless introduces himself, we apparently cut to mid-conversation as Bayless is chatting John up about the parade. He says he can't condone a pagan celebration, but nor can he condemn anything that unites the community. Yeah, and then he starts kind of complaining about how they've sold the soul of Thursdike and who knows what awful things are going on at the Air Force Base. And John says, well, it's jobs, isn't it? When you haven't any money, it's easy to swap a Davy lamp for a contamination suit. Ah, yes, jobs. Once upon a time, souls were traded for immortality or riches. Now we are bought and sold with the promise of jobs. The human spirit is devalued currency. How the devil must be laughing. And it's not only the missile base. Sometimes the church bells ring in sympathy with vibrations underground. So this is a fairly typical John Constantine scene. He sort of often finds himself just a passive listener as crazy folks rant at him. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I mean, there's some interesting philosophizing in this issue, but there's also some indistinct voice here. A lot of politicking and philosophizing that seems to use characters as mouthpieces. That's an interesting point. Yeah, there is a whole thing going on with sort of anti-nuclear sentiment. Mm -hmm. And Grant Morrison is kind of keeping it enigmatic the extent to which he agrees with it. Yeah, that's a fair way of putting it. I suppose not. I mean, once we, once we get to the end of this two-issue <laughs> sequence, his position becomes fairly clear, I think. But we'll get to that. Yeah, I, I just feel a little bit like he uses both Bayless and a, a scene ago Horobin to just to kind of spit out some interesting thoughts that he's had, some interesting turns of phrase on the concepts of, like, jobs and war and nuclear weapons. Yeah, I think that that's one of the weaknesses of this story is that it doesn't really have fully developed characters. Mm. Even Constantine isn't... His motivations and what he's trying to get out of this scenario are kind of more touched on than really developed. Yeah, I will say he at least retains a distinctive voice. In terms of the way he talks, yes. Yeah. Meanwhile, Una is taking a photo of a Virgin Mary statue, but its reflection in the pond is a devil figure, and she's a little freaked out. God has deserted us, Mr. Constantine, says Bayless. Tonight we shall see if the old gods have anything better to offer. There's a tick of the clock, and then parading. This is kind of a weird cut. The page break is followed by one more line of the last scene. Then over a one-panel break, we cut to some time later. Yeah, and John, as he listens to the parade, we get more talk of these kind of vibrations. And this time, he's the one noticing it. Yeah, the vibration seems to wake him up. We get the narration here. The room rings like a wine glass. So John is woken at 3.30 by the parade. If he came here because the parade was interesting, why is he sleeping? That's a really interesting point. I guess he's just not a very good tourist. Maybe it's earlier than scheduled? Or a very good person. <laughs> I don't know if that's demonstrated in this story. We've certainly seen evidence. Well, he does some shitty things in this story. But again, getting ahead of ourselves. So he hears the creepy music of the parade as it's going by his window. Tin drums, piccolos, bad dream music. At the church, Father Bayless looks up at a stained glass window and starts demanding a sign from God. Yeah, apparently he's pretty torn up over the 
pagan festival situation since he's up alone in the church begging for wisdom from God in the middle of the night. Just as he's asking for a sign, the stained glass window shatters. It seems to cut him up, but he doesn't mind, saying, The saints have left the glass and filled me with light. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Right, and outside the church we see gathered the anti-nuclear protesters. Back in the hotel, John hears the sound of breaking glass and a child crying. And then we get into the scary shit. Yeah, now this part is kind of weird. I guess we should just read it. I kind of don't want to go into a ton of detail, but you can read it if you like. Well, I don't know. How else are we going to make sense of it, I guess? Go ahead, shoot. Somewhere a child cries and cries and cries and stops abruptly. Dad and Michael come in the night to sleeping Rachel Ackroyd. Solicitous Dad takes her aside and teaches her the facts of life. Mr. Bone, the butcher, grunts and snuffles and wets his razor. While pinned to a slab of marble, dreaming of makeup and miniskirts, Billy begs for castration. Now, Dad, Michael, Rachel Ackroyd, Mr. Bone, and Billy are all of them introduced for the first time in the narration on this page and never mentioned again. Right, so basically contrasted with the slow-mo of John putting his jacket on and walking out of the hotel, we have a bunch of horrifying rapes and murders that are going on in Thursdyke, committed by the paraders in their scary oversized masks. The narration tells us, It is the music of transfiguration, and the devil, as always, has the best tunes. Yeah, that's a good line. Give up the devil and rock and roll. <laughs> we cut now to the inside of Horobin's lab, where he is explaining to his assistant that he has set all of the town's repressed longings loose with the use of microwaves. Right, by bombarding the town with microwaves and the frequency of the human brain, he sent a signal that wiped out people's inhibitions. I've woken the sleeping giant, he says. What have I done, he says, but he seems pretty happy about it. Douchebag! <laughs> uh, there seems to be a thing on his desk, some kind of desk toy that he has that has three balls. That's not Horbin's desk. We're in the next scene. Oh, whose desk is that? This is a baby's crib. Oh, I see. It's a baby crib toy. Right. So we're sort of from the perspective of a baby as it's playing with these three balls on the rail of its crib. And that brings us back to the recurring image from the first page. Right. And now this is someone, possibly the sheriff, dressed like a giant baby from the cover. He's killed his wife for loving the baby more and next goes for the baby. That's just counterproductive. That's like Why have a baby if you're going to kill your baby? Wow. It's a waste of effort. I mean, he probably wasn't bombarded with microwaves at the time he conceived. I guess that's true. I mean, that would actually probably make it pretty hard to conceive, So don't right? microwave your baby, but oh, also God. don't microwave yourself. <laughs> it's like, the baby won't be safe either way. We have a guy here who kills his dogs and cuts their eyes out and lines the eyes up in the form of the three balls motif. Yeah, and this guy has kind of a goat head. Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, with Lloyd's art, with the garish light and the creepy masks and people hurting their loved ones, this goes past horror into outright disturbing. These sequences creeped me the fuck out. Uh, you know what? I found that they were almost so divorced from any context 
as to not be very effective. Really? Okay. Like, we didn't give really much of a shit about any of the characters that this is happening to. So, it just seemed, I don't know, it was kind of like, to me, it was almost like kind of like wasted effort trying to scare us. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I think we don't get a lot of time to know who these characters are and where they're coming from, but... We are given such basic tableaus of situations in which people are supposed to, you know, treat each other with care and respect and be safe around one another that are so instantly betrayed that it works. I, I was going to say it works for me. It worked to scare the hell out of me. It's just instantly wrong. Yeah, I guess it's just like this issue never took the time to establish this town as being like peaceful or nice or idyllic in any way. So the reversal of those idyllic scenarios doesn't really impact to me. And also, I'm just so accustomed in this book to seeing, like, oh, some kind of magic thing has happened and made everybody go nuts. <laughs> that, the, that the various carnage of what happens when the people go nuts is kind of lost on me. You know? I see. I see what you mean. So by contrast with the scene that we got... In our last Hellblazer episode, talking about the beginning of the Family Man story arc, where we're set up with these really idyllic lives of these people, and then it goes to hell, that was much more effective in your view? Yeah, that was more effective because we get three or four pages of idyllic, followed by, like, two panels of terrifying. Right, right. You know? As opposed to zero panels of idyllic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also... just page after page of terrifying. Yeah. I also want to point out, this does seem to be something of a favorite theme for Grant Morrison, that our strongest relationships carry an undercurrent of perversion, or at least have the ability to twist us toward evil and madness. I don't know if you remember in Serious House on Serious Earth, one of the things that happened in that comic is a man finds that his wife and child have been slain and his first instinct is to eat the bodies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is a weird bit. There's also, of course, the famous sequence in New X-Men where, under the influence of Cassandra Nova, the mutant Beak brutally beats his mentor with a baseball bat. Right. His mentor being, of course, Hank McCoy the Beast. Right, right. So there's this idea that in extreme circumstances or when inhibitions are removed for some reason, people can turn very quickly on the people and things they should care about the most. Right. Well, this issue closes with Constantine wandering out into the parade. And unlike times in the past where we've seen John as like an observer to this chaos as people's evil impulses are set loose, this time he puts on a mask and joins in. Right, he is under the spell too, grinning as he puts on a giant Margaret Thatcher mask. And that's a really subtle political message. <laughs> really subtle? Right. And it brings us to the end of issue 25. All right, launching into Hellblazer number 26, How I Learned to Love the Bomb. Same credits. On the cover, we find a horrified John amidst a mass of writhing humanity and Horobin's face rising above them all. Yeah, and the whole thing looks very hellish, sort of fiery and damned. Yeah. So we turn the page and we see the birth of DC's newest superhero, Archbishop Bomb. Right, the protesters strip Pastor Bayless down and redress him in ceremonial robes. They paint a bullseye on his face. They put a rocket-shaped hat on his head and christen him Archbishop Bomb. This is a pretty cool outfit, but I want to know where they got that airplane-shaped rosary. 
Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch as well. Now, after this story arc, Archbishop Baum goes on to be a member of the uh, Justice League Europe. Right? Oh, yeah? Okay. <laughs> He's a little dark for Justice League International, I think. So, the mob that has anointed him as their leader begins heading for the airbase to do what mischief they will. And we see two guards. One of them is named Keller. They are Keller and Chambers. Chambers is freaking out because there's a mob storming the base, but Keller calmly states that the alarm klaxon is the last sound we'll ever hear. The siren is Gabriel's trumpet calling down Judgment Day. You know, I also got the impression that he says this in a very calm, kind of almost cheerful way. It's the last sound we'll ever hear. The siren is Gabriel's trumpet calling down Judgment Day. Good to know, bro. (laughs) Thanks, dude. Should we, like, I don't know, shoot the dudes trying to take the nukes or something? Yeah, uh, so Keller, slightly before putting his pistol in his mouth, says, Did you ever go down on death? And shoots himself. Well, okay. I guess there is something kind of phallic about the gun in that situation. I think it's fairly unsubtle. You guys, Sean referred to his notes as he said that. He heard what I said, and he looked at his notes and says, I think it's fairly unsubtle. This can only lead me to believe that Sean prepares comebacks in advance for various things that I might say. I knew you were going to say that. This is some code kids shit right here. <laughs> okay. So as as the mob, as the parade makes its way through town, this is a different mob than the one heading for the Air Force base. I keep calling it an Air Force base, but of course in England the Air Force is not called the Air Force. It's called the RAF, which I guess stands for Royal Air Force. Right, this is an RAF base. They've been complaining about the Yanks, but this is apparently not the Yanks base. Well, yeah, I don't know. It, it or might maybe be they a... blame the Yanks for just the presence of English nuclear power. There might be an American presence at the base. That seems like a thing that could happen. But in any case, the parade is going down the streets of Thursdale. And... Right, okay, so the protesters from the big city are at the church and the RAF base getting into the nukes. While the locals are doing the parade down the main street. Right. Now, they surround a car and start trying to sacrifice the passengers. And the narration informs us, Every town has its own note. The streets resonate, a sounding box of windy avenues and stopped alleys. And all the people of the town are born ringing in sympathy with the town's great note. When the pitch is altered, nerves vibrate like bass strings in the dark. In the dark. Thursdike in the dark, ringing like a bell of warning, like the horn of Gabriel. So more murders go on. Una witnesses some of this. She is running and hiding over and over again, saying to herself, make it stop. We get a pretty good panel here of Una witnessing what's happening and suppressing a scream as she looks on horrified. It constitutes about an eighth of the page, which is a shame because it's probably the best art that we get on this page. On the next page, Una recognizes John walking down the street in the Thatcher mask. Yeah, and he is at this point leading the mob of parade goers. That's what I thought at first, too. But on second glance, I believe he's leading a small mob of children. Oh, really? At least in this panel, they look to be considerably shorter than he is. Then again, maybe he's unusually tall. That would explain how she could recognize him when he's wearing a mask. Oh, I see. I assume she was just familiar with what he was wearing that day. 
But it looks like he's leading them to the water to all drown themselves. That's what I thought. Follow me. Mummy knows best. Mummy knows best. In your hearts, you know it's right. If my Constantine voice is a different English accent than I did 20 minutes ago, that's because he's doing an impression of Thatcher. Right. Yeah, that explains it. That's what that is. So Una rips the mask off of John's head and tries to remind him, You're John Constantine, remember? John Constantine! You're John Constantine! Yeah, there's a pretty spooky panel here of him menacingly turning towards her in the Thatcher mask. Do you think that's how Matt Ryan gets into character? Which, by putting on a Thatcher mask or by turning creepily to whoever walks into the dressing room? No, just by just like looking in the mirror in the dressing room and being like, You're John Constantine! You're John Constantine! You're John Constantine! That's that's a method, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how he does it. Speaking of a method, Una takes off her headphones and puts them on John's head, and that causes him to snap out of the spell. <laughs> the headphones... I just want to point out here that my notes say, Nuts canceling headphones. Yeah. <laughs> oh, because... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that because you think that puns are the highest possible form of humor. Not the highest, just very near the top. (laughs) So, she puts the headphones on John, that cancels out the effect. They don't seem to be able to stop the people or children he was leading from walking into the sea. Meanwhile, back at the base... Back at the base, Archbishop Baum is leading some guys up to a guard who warns that he'll shoot but doesn't. Just shoot him, dude. So he shoots Bayless. No kidding, he just bang. That doesn't happen. Oh. No, yeah, it does. Oh, okay, I see. In those middle panels. Alright, that's not much of a bang, but okay. That's what's supposed to be happening there. Bayless is injured, but as the crowd falls on the guard, Bayless rises again dramatically. See? I rise again! Like that. Meanwhile, underground, Professor Horobin rambles. A giant sleeps in all of us, a buried king. The Bible asks, Canst thou loose the bands of Orion? This I have done. I have unchained Prometheus, woken the god within. So the visitor looks at the microwave machine, deciding he had better do something about it. But when he looks inside, it's hollow. There is no machine. Right. It turns out that this whole thing is not a science apocalypse after all. It's an actual magical one. Right. So there's definitely an effect, and there's definitely an antidote to the effect, and then we reveal that nothing was making the effect. There is no cause. Mm. Theological statement if I ever heard one. (laughs) I was pretty mad when I read this the first time. I guess we're not supposed to read that nothing is going on, just that it's not being caused by Horbin's machine. Right. Maybe we're to understand that it's caused somehow by Horbin's intentions. Hmm, okay. But I guess that's a possibility. It's just, it's just not particularly well written. You didn't be, like that reveal either? Be, and to be entirely honest with you, no, this, this story is just not super well written. <clears throat> well, I had written, why should the story make sense from page to page? But that's maybe a little harsh. <laughs> I guess the tone of the town has changed, and that's what's driving everybody crazy. Grant Morrison is truly a pioneer in the area of comics this story for instance is a different story on every page (laughs) (laughs) take place in a slightly different universe don't you know your job on this podcast is to stop me from being that mean to grant morrison 
<laughs> Listen, if we were gonna have a guy who's nice to Grant Morrison, we should have fucking planned that shit in advance. No, I like I, I like Grant Morrison. I like Serious House. I like New X Men a lot. And I bet there are some lovely turns of phrase in this story, if nothing else. Anyway, Horbin doesn't want this guy messing with his non-machine, so he picks up a hammer and kills him. Never go to work for a guy like that. A guy who kills you with a hammer? Well, I feel like a guy who speechifies at you about fucking buried giants and shit, it's only a matter of time. Yeah, maybe. Before he, he hits you with a hammer. You know, he brings you all this ice cream, and you think... <laughs> that it's gonna be a good day. <laughs> and then, oh. <laughs> Justice for Kyle! <laughs> you thought I would forget. <laughs> Never forget. On the next page, we get a group of insects gathered around a dead dog's body. I think they're people dressed as insects. I don't know. Well, yes. But are they? I have written here, more crimes go on. Sean, magical things are happening. Maybe they've been turned into insects. Maybe on this page, people are literally Ooh. becoming whatever their costumes are. Actually, the Thatcher thing the... makes more sense in that context as well. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm just drowning a bunch of kids. Just leading England right into the sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so more crimes go on. Again, I don't need to go into a lot of detail here. There was a part here that was kind of effectively creepy. So I want to read it. In Cromwell Street, the children are led smiling to the razor man, who gently removes their faces to make child masks for the adults. The children depart with wet red Halloween cake faces, smiling still. Blah! Ugh! <laughs> yeah. That's exactly the part I didn't want to go back to. Sorry. So it's, gross. It's so... Like, that part is actually really creepy, though. Like, I... That was actually good writing. Okay. Okay. Not the first time that you've liked something in which someone cut their face off and I didn't. Are we talking about Scott Snyder right now? No. I was talking about the movie Hannibal. Oh, yeah, that's a good movie! Mm. <laughs> there are dead bodies hanging from several uh, streetlights in a row, and somebody shouts, The devil has come to Thursdyke! Which, thanks, Captain Obvious. <laughs> So, Una and John are holed up in the local disco with all the kids she's been able to rescue. The disco is called Joanna's, a reference to Constantine's ancestor? Oh, Probably not. Thought. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> After building her mystical Actually, reputation for many years and rescuing the Sandman's son from captivity in revolutionary France, she founded a disco in the north of England. I was going to say, I don't know that Grant Morrison is actually familiar with the Sandman stuff. It turns out that loud music, like the sonic youth on Una's Walkman, blocks out the hypnotic effect of the non-existent machine. Right, are you familiar with sonic youth? I understand them to be loud. They're a noise rock band, so okay. I, guess, I guess you could say that they are loud. Is there something of specific note about sonic youth? Uh, just that I have their record. Oh. Daydream Nation. It's, it's a good record. They only have one record? No, it's their most successful one. Oh, okay. I think they have more than one. John says that this sound, this vibration, is causing people's dark sides to erupt and take over. Masks that tell the truth, Una says. We learn that she is freaking out because she's not been taking the pills, and she's hearing all the chaos in her head. There's something else that's important on this page that I'm going to want to come back to later, so I'll just point it out. John says that his 
unconscious dark side is I wanted to lead people, to show them my way was the best way. Christ Almighty. That's a good point. John also mentions here that the weird images she had been seeing in the previous issue, he believes to have been psychic flashes of the danger brewing in Thursday. Yeah, we got a lot, a lot of foreboding kind of stuff in that first issue. So it's good to see that the plot is at least addressing that. Yeah. Una says... Do you believe a town can commit suicide? That's what's happening, John. The town can't take anymore. Years of failure and neglect, it's destroying itself. She realizes, apparently psychically, that Bayless and the protesters have gone to the RAF base. Oh Christ, the missiles. That's how it must work on them. It's bringing out their hidden desires, see? It's like they need the bomb. The bomb gives their lives meaning. Like a new religion. And now they've gone to meet God. So John rushes off to stop them from setting off the nukes and destroying all of northern England. Una gives him a bachelor pad tape to shield him from the effect of the machine that doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. Jeez. The bachelor pad is another noise rock band of the era. They're most famous for their song Country Pancake. Country Pancake? Country Pancake. Okay. There's... Brief allusion here to the radiation symbol being a three-in-one, much like the Christian Trinity. I thought that was kind of cute. Yeah, that was all right with me. Just all right. That's the kind of cleverness you expect from Gland... Gland Murgatroyd. Gland Murgatroyd. Grunt Murchison. (laughs) (laughs) Gross murder man! (laughs) Uh, <laughs> I like here how Constantine gets behind the wheel of a car and Una's like, I didn't know you could drive. And Constantine goes, drive? Of course I can't. As he clutches the wheel at the super intense face. And it's like, this is his action hero moment. As he says, of course I can't. And guns it. As John drives for the... Oh, yeah, I've written here. John realizes there's one more problem. He can't drive. (laughs) Sorry. So as John drives through the base, we have Bayless boarding a jet fighter. Yeah, and they cut back and forth here in a way that effectively builds tension, but also kind of creates the illusion that John is about to run the archbishop over, which... Mm, he's not right that doesn't actually happen that's not a thing that happens john as he's driving is blasting a song which seemed from my research to not be a real song this is not a bachelor pad song not as far as i know beep beep means the van is coming bang bang means the man is dead room room means the engine's running and as the Archbishop gets into the fighter jet. He announces that he feels the presence of Azrael, Death God, Death Angel. Azrael, Death God, Chris Angel. John Paul Valley, actually. Oh, yeah. So John pulls up with the windows rolled down and the music blaring out of the car. The bachelor pad diffuses the randos. Oh, God, what are we doing here? What are we doing? But John is too late to stop Bayless, who takes off. Stop! For God's sake, stop! And then there's a cool part where the plane is flying away and he just very quietly in very small text says, stop. Yeah. Now it seems like Parson Bayless comes to his senses 
as he reaches some sort of sufficient altitude. Right. Is that distance from the town, or is he snapped out of it by the sound of the jet fighter? I don't know. In any event, he seems to realize he's been acting crazy, and then he is awash in white light. I thought here that he had died in an explosion, but he will be back in a couple pages. Now, just before the bombs land and destroy the whole town, the power goes out in the disco, and an angry mob pulls Una out into the street and strips her naked to sacrifice her. Which I thought was pretty gratuitous, since they're all going to die anyway. I do not think that they strip her naked. I think that this person is a crazy who's stripping herself naked. Una still has her clothes on a couple panels after that. Okay, if you say so. Still gratuitous, not gratuitous Una nudity. Okay. But in any case, the whole thing about her being pulled out of the disco and, and sacrificed and, like, begging John for help and he's not there... It's all kind of cheap horror, mm. considering that on the very next page, we get this massive nuclear explosion. Right. Right before they're about to burn Una, they all see the plane in the sky, it crashes down in the village square, and we have three quarters of a page as a massive explosion. Killing Una, all the rioters, and we are forced to conclude all the kids she tried to save. Great. Yeah, I guess maybe it's not supposed... I guess it is It is going to be a nuclear explosion if a nuclear bomb-equipped plane... I think we have to read it as non-nuclear. Okay. It destroys the town, yeah, but, but John said it would destroy all of northern England if the nukes went off. Yeah, I guess it doesn't destroy all of the north of England, so it, maybe it's a non-nuclear explosion. And that makes sense with Bayless having apparently come to his senses in some way. He sacrifices himself and stops the parade, but he doesn't trigger the disaster. I see. On the next page, some time has apparently passed. TV news reporters are standing in the wreckage discussing the tragedy that has taken place. We learn that the Prime Minister is on her way to offer sympathy and support. Who's the Prime Minister? I think at this point it's Thatcher. I know. Okay. The reporter tells the camera, police have already revealed that a radical anti-nuclear group may have been responsible for the... Yeah, that's right, mate. Feed them all the old lies, John says, walking up behind the man and ruining his take. Stick it to the man, John. You got a posh accent, so it must be true. Cut. Cut and start again. Bloody pain in the ass. John walks on, recalling Una's words that the town was committing suicide, but he disagrees. It died years ago, and what we have seen was no more than a haunting, an unquiet spirit tricked out in living colors. And as he says this, he finds Una's camera among the rubble. There's lights, those voices, echoes of the sounds, a painted sheet drawn over a corpse, a mask. On the final page, John thumbs a ride. He meets the same truck driver as he hitchhiked with before and tells him that he's headed now to London, all the way down. So, you know what that really reminded me of? Antarctica? No, I was going to say, John walks into this town, a bunch of people are acting crazy there, there's some... Uh, brutal violence and uh, sexual violence going on. John is kind of a helpless observer. And then the crazy people manage to blow all of themselves up while John survives. It's almost exactly like that Vietnam story. Right. Hellblazer number five, when Johnny comes marching home. It also bears more than a passing resemblance to the Fear Machine story, specifically the part that took place on the train. Mm -hmm. In which the fear machine's blast drove an entire area of people crazy and they all hurt themselves or hurt each other and John managed to escape. 
Right. And I was struck by the fact that Hellblazer keeps coming back to this idea of mass hysteria. Mm -hmm. Right? And it's almost as if the various writers, Jamie Delano, here Grant Morrison, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that they're trying to write a mystical story, they kind of keep coming back to this sort of skeptics idea that the worst thing that magic or the supernatural can do is invoke mass hysteria. You know, that magical stuff isn't real and that it's just the way that people behave because they believe in it. That's dangerous. That seems to me to be a kind of inherently like humanist, atheistic kind of skeptical idea. And you contrast it with stories that I think are much better, much more effective, and much scarier, like Hunger mm-hmm. or Newcastle, okay. where it's like there are dark supernatural things, and the effects that they have when they're let loose on the world are utterly terrifying. Mm, okay, you know, yeah. and I find those stories to be a lot scarier, personally. Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't say that it's like, it's certainly not the position of Jamie Delano that magic doesn't exist in the Constantine universe. Obviously, he wrote lots of issues in which it did. Right. Probably not the position of Grant Morrison that magic doesn't exist in Constantine's or even our own universe. Well, yeah, that's interesting that Grant Morrison should write what seems to me to be such a such a skeptically inclined story. Mm-hmm. Because Grant Morrison is a mystic, you know? Yeah. But I guess to me it falls under the auspice of... Hellblazer is trying to do adult horror, sophisticated horror, and part of doing horror as a social commentary is to comment on sort of the nature and the darker inclinations of people. Yeah, I guess that's true. I I think maybe part of why it's not effective for me is just that we've seen so much of it. Like, this book keeps going back to that well. Yeah. Of, like, mass hysteria stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. But yeah, we do keep coming back to this idea of the sort of darker side or id of people being unleashed people's darker inclinations turning into a very low-key horror in the sense that there's no supernatural power out to get you just people stripped of their better impulses yeah now is it just me or are you getting kind of kind of worn out of this kind of story from this book i can't say that i was worn out on the mass hysteria concept i felt it kind of tedious to do yet another story where john wanders into a place and witnesses its destruction and wanders out without any consequence to himself well yeah and especially his friend una here is just so disposable yeah yeah absolutely she's introduced as a constantine ex-girlfriend and then fulfills the requisite the requisite duties of the role by dying in the second issue yeah by being terrified and then dying at least she didn't get stripped naked right well Maybe we're being a little too harsh when we say that. A number of Constantine girlfriends have actually survived. Yeah, one of them saved the world without much help from him. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, and and there was potential in Una, too, as an ex-girlfriend who has psychic powers of her own and uh, knew him at his lowest ebb in Ravenscar. Those are both interesting ideas that... Nothing much was really done with except to set her up as someone who has a connection to him. Well, yeah, and not just that, but the fact that she's, like, she's, like, a photographer, and she goes to take a picture of a thing, and, like, it looks all scary instead, you know, and she has psychic powers that come with this awful trade-off, you know? Just so many things that could have made her an interesting character for the long term, and instead she kind of gets 
sacrificed to like establish the tragedy or whatever mm-hmm. of this scenario. There's also kind of an enhanced perception concept as she has to take pills to turn off her being psychic. Like this was written in in 1990, so Ritalin hadn't quite become a big deal yet. Hmm. But the idea that she has supernatural perception that her basically her medication that keeps her sane also dispenses with is an interesting one. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Another thing I want to talk about is this idea that Constantine has this subconscious instinct to be a leader. Mm-hmm. Did that strike you as particularly feeling true? I mean, I think I think that's somewhat fair. We've seen him walk into situations and kind of take command of them. Uh, the Newcastle incident itself is the most obvious example, where he leads his band in a fairly foolhardy attempt at an exorcism. Yes, that is true. And he's, like, assigning people roles. I remember that he specifically is, like, taking advantage of the one woman who has a crush on him to get her to follow instructions better. Right, and he comes up with a job for the boy who was attacked by the demon to, like, keep his mind busy. Right. Okay, if you look at it in the context of that Newcastle story, I guess it kind of makes sense as an insight about his character. Coming out of Fear Machine, maybe less so. Because in Fear Machine, he goes off on his own to rescue Mercury, rather than kind of leading the group to do it. Yeah, it's true. He doesn't reconvene with the hippies and actually form a a plan of action with them until very late in the story. Like, midway through the last issue. And then even there at the end, it's Zed taking charge, not him, so much. Yeah, he finds himself in the second banana roll. Indeed. (laughs) I sort of wish I hadn't said he had a banana roll in that story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is a banana roll like a pumpkin roll at all? Well, it's just that he solved the problem mostly using his penis. <laughs> that was what was needed of him at that at that moment. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, he definitely has a take charge mentality, but a lot of the time that leads him less in a leadership direction and more in a loner direction. As we saw in Fear Machine and as we saw again here as he immediately comes up with a a thing that he can do that's important to do that involves leaving everybody else and dashing off to avert nuclear apocalypse by himself. Right. So, uh, while we're on that subject, did you have a most Constantine moment? I mean, it's fairly large for a moment, but my Constantine moment, I think, is that he immediately chooses for himself the mission in which he accomplishes nothing, but manages to take himself out of the blast radius. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. He does seem to manage to work the circumstances sometimes so that he lives in these situations. But I guess if not, there would be no book. Yeah, and looking back on it, there's actually no reason why they don't just pack Una and the kids into the van and then at least they would have survived. Right, yeah, that's and, a good point. And and frankly, like like I said, I found the horror sequences in this book very disturbing, but... Perhaps the cruelest stroke is that Una went around managing to free and save children, and then they all got blown up. Yeah, no, I I, want to come back to that, because that was a candidate for me for most Constantine moment. Okay. The fact that going into a disco is the solution to the problem. (laughs) Okay. But for me, what ultimately wins out, what felt like the most Constantine moment for me, was when he was listening to Pastor Bayless carry on like a crazy person. 
and was just sort of interjecting here and there. Well, you know, people need jobs, don't they? You know, like people need jobs in it. <laughs> you know, and he just he's just kind of like, you know, just sort of quietly accommodating the guy as he goes on this huge rant. Yeah. That felt the most Constantine-like to me out of all the individual moments in the story. Yeah, well, John is basically an observer in this story. Even when he, you know, he gets involved in the horrific crimes, you know, he's out of his right mind. And then when he gets it back, he's back to being an outsider. He's basically an observer in the story. And we get a, a few scenes of people kind of ranting at him and he just makes a sardonic comment here and there. <laughs> That's right. Did you have anything else you wanted to cover? Well, since you've read a lot more Grant Morrison than I have, where do you file this story amongst the oeuvre? Oh, I like it a lot less than most Grant Morrison stories. I would say, even though I was recently making fun of the filth Mm -hmm. on this podcast, I even would file, like, the first issue of the filth above this. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, I did not have a good time with this story at all. Do you want to speculate as to what didn't work? Was it... Morrison writing in the context of an ongoing series or do you feel like the story itself was undercooked or well as we've said the weaknesses to this story are to me I think are a the fact that John is such a passive observer in it Mm -hmm. the fact that it's such a a mass hysteria storyline which is such well-tread ground Mm -hmm. for this book Uh, and I think some of that is coming from the fact that Morrison is trying to make this strong anti-nuclear stance mm-hmm. with this story. And as a piece of, like, political polemic, it just doesn't work. Okay. But you don't think that necessarily the the fact of it being in the context of Constantine's series is a problem? No. I think that Grant Morrison has demonstrated the ability to pick up... Uh, to drop in, effectively? Yeah, to pick up other people's characters and, and run with them in interesting ways. Especially, like, Serious House on Serious Earth Okay, is a good example of that. Also, um, All-Star Superman. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about David Lloyd's art for this book for just a minute? Well, <laughs> it is what it is. Is that an if-you-don't-have-anything-nice-to-say moment? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean... He's very effective at establishing mood. Yeah. He's maybe somewhat less effective at making it clear what's going on. Okay. Yeah, we get a lot of... I've referred to it as garish light, but we get a lot of wild pinks and yellows and oranges. And we get a lot of scenes that are cast basically in one overarching color. It's not so much a a thick line style as a very chiaroscuro heavy style using shades of gray or shades of gray superimposed over a color to establish impressions of figures right there just weren't a ton of moments that really jumped out at me as being particularly impressive art i like the thing that he did with the recurring the recurring motif of the three balls but other than that there were a couple of moments that i thought were kind of cool and that's at the beginning when we're doing the foreboding moments and I thought he did a pretty good job of slipping like frightening imagery into panels uh, without necessarily calling attention to it. Okay. Like this creepy carriage that comes up behind John here. Oh yeah, that was a spooky moment, although I had to decipher it. So it was more of a spooky idea once I understood what it was showing than an actual spooky moment of reading a comic book. Okay, that's fair, that's fair. Now it's time for a segment I like to call Hey Sean, Read This, where I am taken completely by surprise by a more recent Vertigo comic. How did 
How did you know that? <laughs> Psychic powers. <laughs> well, Sean's right. I've got a comic book for him. It's Mad Max Fury Road, number one, written by George Miller. Ooh. With art by Mark Sexton. This came out last year, I think. Okay. From the Vertigo imprint. And you will be reading it now. <laughs> okay, this is Mad Max Fury Road number one. Script by Mark Sexton and Nico Lathoris from a story by George Miller. Art by Mark Sexton and a cover by Tommy Lee Edwards. Yes. So what did you think of it? So this is pretty cool. We start out in... And now I cannot remember the name of the town from the film. But it's the town from the film. It's in Morton Joe's town, and there's this old man who turns to the camera and starts narrating. And then he gives us a pretty cool little six-page sum-up of the first three Mad Max movies, which I guess sets the stage for this story between Thunderdome and Fury Road. Okay. I thought that that flashback had some of the best art in the book. But just this recap page? Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good. The art is tight and concise and effective. The drawings of Mad Max look not really like Mel Gibson or Tom Hardy, but more like Mel Gibson. Okay. Is that throughout the book or just in the flashbacks? Uh, throughout the book, I would say. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely drawings of Mel Gibson in the Thunderdome recap. Like that, there he is. <laughs> Let me see. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, that's kind of a neat little thing just because... The Mad Max canon is not an incredibly tight canon, and most people, I think, upon seeing Fury Road would have to conclude, basically, there's no way all the movies fit together. That's okay, but that's the way it is. I think a lot of people thought that it was a reboot. Yeah. And the fact that it's the first Mad Max movie with a different actor doesn't hurt that it, perception. Yeah, and then the destruction of the Interceptor in one movie, and then the Interceptor is back in another movie. Although this explains that by saying, well, Max always wants to rebuild his Interceptor. There's okay. a couple of... of tweaks to the continuity here one is the strong suggestion that the world ending war was not a nuclear war between the u.s and the ussr as we had kind of been led to believe but sort of an anti-capitalist uprising okay and another is that even though this is the fury road comic max's son is a blonde-haired boy again instead of a dark-haired girl okay so Anyway, Max wanders into Gastown, which is a place that we hear about but don't really see in the Fury Road movie. They have rebuilt Thunderdome there. There's a fight in Thunderdome. He uh, wins the fight through some ruthlessness and a little bit of outside help. He goes off into the wilderness with the engine that he's won for his battle in Thunderdome. and That's the to... bulk of the comic book, is him fighting in the Thunderdome to win this engine. Yeah, yeah. And the Thunderdome fight... I'll say that the Thunderdome fight is like much more brutal and violent than the one that we get in the movie Beyond Thunderdome. Okay. Which is like one of the high points of the movie, but it's a very comic fight scene in the film. I see. Uh, and then he's like, he starts to rebuild his car, but then the guys who he killed their leader in Thunderdome show up and they think that he cheated and they stake him out to die. But then this woman, who we do not get her name in this comic book, shows up and saves his life. And as a result, he has to help her out. And we will find out what that is about next issue. Yeah. So I am not actually even sure that this series finished. Okay. It might have been canceled before it got to a trade. Really? This might have ended without completing its story. Yeah, I think it might have. That's that's too bad. But we'll look into that for sure, because you're interested in reading more of it? Yeah, I thought this was really cool. It's a much more compressed comic than we usually see these days. 
fits a lot more story into these pages in a way that I'm used to. And the art's pretty tight. And I think it, it's doing justice to the characters in the world. Okay. I found the color palette to be kind of ugly. Is that just to be expected, <laughs> given that it's Mad Max? I, I think that's or... fairly standard, yeah. Okay. Did you take issue with the coloration itself, or just the like the color choices, the color palette? I guess it was more... The coloration itself, in the, in the mob scenes, in the Thunderdome, it sort of seems like everything is kind of drawn the same tone. There's a definite tendency here which looks deliberate to color like each scene with an overwhelming color Mm -hmm. when they're in thunderdome it's all kind of green when max gets back to his hideout it's all blue the desert is red etc and yeah that that could be a side effect of like an overzealous computerized coloring okay i think it's a deliberate effect but i can see how it's an effect that you know might detract from the feeling that the book has much detail in the art I'm getting the feeling here that a knowledge of the films is a prerequisite to fully enjoying this book. I certainly enjoyed that it was tied into the film's story, that it showed respect to them. You have seen it does all... recap all of the films pretty concisely in here. You have seen all of the Mad Max films. That's right. I have only seen Mad Max Fury Road. So we're coming at this from sort of different perspectives. Yeah, I think maybe they could have gone for a more universal story if instead of giving us all of that backstory, they had just done a very light setup that establishes that Max is a post-apocalyptic survivor. Oh, okay. Did it seem to you like the Thunderdome officials or whatever decided to like let that one particular band of bandits cheat? Well, it seems like they've got a fairly bad system for running Thunderdome. Okay. Because they have rules for the Thunderdome, but on Amnesty Day, anybody can walk in, and the Amnesty extends to cheating in Thunderdome. (laughs) I see. (laughs) It's like, how did they not think of this? This is the first thing you would think of. I see. Well, I will uh, look into where the rest of this series can be found, if indeed it didn't get canceled, and we'll, uh, we'll update that in the show notes. Well, there was something else I noticed in here, is that there's a scene... Immortan Joe appears in this comic book, but he's out of sight. He's cast in shadow. Right. I thought it was setting up a reveal that Immortan Joe would turn out not to be who we thought he was, but we didn't get to that in this issue. Yeah, you know, I don't get the impression that this was meant to be read after watching Fury Road. It seems more like it's trying to lead in. Yeah. So. Yeah, I agree. Well, all right. So that was Hellblazer issues 25 and 26. In our next Hellblazer issue, we'll be returning to the saga of the family man. But first, join us next week as Preacher drops by the Big Easy and runs into some old familiar faces. Hey, if you like our show, you should check out our website at vertigize.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we hope you do, you can reach us on Twitter at Vertigize. And you can reach me on Twitter, at BlankCastSean. Send us an email, vertiguys at gmail.com. Or you can get in touch with us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vertiguys. If you're listening to our show on the Apple Podcasts app, you can download, subscribe, rate, or review. Those positive reviews really help us to uh, gather an audience, so we appreciate that a lot. I want to give a shout-out to uh, Cardealer910, for a great iTunes review that he left. Thanks a lot, car dealer. Hey, thanks. The Vertiguys show is written and hosted by me and Sean. Sean is the producer. 
I've got Webmaster Duties. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. I skipped that page. Sometimes <laughs> I just don't read pages. Helps me get through a comic book faster. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, page 59. You've been randomly selected for deletion. <laughs> the taste of Armageddon. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that Superman was in Dark Knight Returns. Oh, shit.